Um, it was about 70 years ago that a little paperback book was published called The Normal Christian Life. Sounds sort of boring, doesn't it? Became a bestseller, though. Now, it's a pretty rubbish book, but the title is brilliant, isn't it? The Normal Christian Life. Because it plays on all our insecurities and uncertainties about our own lives. Now, is my fairly normal, bland life really normal? Is there a better, more exciting, more meaningful Christian life out there somewhere? Because most of us, at some level, desperately want to be normal as well as special. But what is normal? And what we perceive as normal plays into what we expect in life. It's generally true, I think, that a normal life for an 18, 19-year-old growing up in Perth, Western Australia, is to go to university, get a degree, hopefully get a job, have some sort of career that pays the bills and, and lets you live comfortably, and eventually retire and enjoy yourself for a little while. But if you lived in Kiev today, that wouldn't be your normal expectation, would it? If you lived in Yemen, it's very much a Perth thing, a, a Western affluent thing. Think about a Christian life. What's the normal Christian life? Is it normal to have dreams and visions and voices in your head? Because if it is normal, why aren't I having them? If it's not normal, why am I having them? Am I going mad? What we think of as normal is actually a really important part of orientating ourselves and living our lives and setting our expectations. In 1 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he sets out two diametrically opposite visions of the normal Christian life. If you've been with us, you'll know that uh, Paul has been dealing with the issues of division within the Corinthian church. He's been doing it for the last three chapters. This is his final um, uh, section of his arguments and discussion. They are into celebrity pastors and personality cults, and that's dividing them. And Paul holds not the leaders responsible, but the followers. Those who come along and say, I, I, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of this person or that person. And he's been correcting them now for three chapters. They're impressed by power and wisdom, by miracles and wise eloquence. But Paul says God's power and wisdom is, is found in Jesus, in the weak, foolish execution of Jesus as a common criminal for us. He said that God gives the growth, which means your leaders are just servants. They're not the, the critical issue. It's God who does the, the real work. And so far, Paul's been fairly gentle his arguments sort of outflank them. He says, come and look at it from a different point of view. Think about power and wisdom differently. Think about your leaders differently. But in this chapter, it's, it's sort of like headbutt time. Now it's time to get to the real issue and face it squarely and try and sort it out. He says, I don't want to come with a, with a stick. I don't want to come with a rod. I want to come gently. But we are at loggerheads. Let's get this sorted. So let's see what he's on about. In verses 8 to 13, you'll see that Paul discusses their version of the normal Christian life and his version of the normal Christian life. Verse 8, already you have all that you want. You're already saturated. You're already saturated with everything that you could want, with knowledge and wisdom, with tongues and healings. Already you're rich. You've begun to reign. 
like a king. He's not saying they're literally kings, but he's saying that's how you think about yourself, as, as victors, as, as reigning over life, as winners in life. Verse 10, uh, he, he talks about them, you're so wise in Christ, you're so strong, you are honoured. He's talking about how they think about themselves. They, they want to be and they are respected. They're looked up to as clever and successful. They're endorsed and admired by the people of influence and gravitas. But there's a key word there, the first word in verse 8. Already you have all that you want. Already you think you've arrived here and now. Already you're successful and popular and trendy. But I don't know whether you picked up the tone of voice that Paul is speaking in. Now, the difficulty with, with, with a, a document is tone of voice isn't there, is it? It's just words on a page. You've, you've got to read it sensitively and work out the tone of voice. Because verse 8, verse 10, he's actually being bitingly ironic. He's using sarcasm. Already you've got all you have, have you? Yeah, right. Or verse 10. You're so wise in Christ, aren't you? You're so strong. You're honoured. He's actually ripping into them. He's sending them up. They think they're like that. They want life to be like that. They think that's the normal Christian life. But it's not, at least in Paul's mind. So what is Paul's version of the normal Christian life? Well, it's very different. Verse 9 seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We've become a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to humans. He picks up the image of the Roman victory parade. You might have seen movies, maybe where you've seen the, the general waltz into the, the city, usually back to Rome, in his victory. I guess the closest equivalent for us is those victory ticker tape parades that the West Coast Eagles have had a couple of times, but certainly won't have this year. And the whole city comes out and watches and they throw all the ticker tape and it's the celebration of victory. And in, in Rome, it was like that. At the front of the procession would be the general, the one who'd led the troops to that amazing, glorious victory over whoever it was. And then all his soldiers sharing in the glory. And after that would come the booty that they had accumulated all the gold and statues, all the, all the wealth, all, all the cattle and sheep even that they'd won in, in the victory. And then right at the end of the parade would be the vanquished. The people, especially the high officials in whatever country or city they'd conquered, they'd be led in in chains to be ridiculed and humiliated. They're at the end of the parade and the parade would likely end up at the Colosseum where they would be fodder for the gladiators. See, the Corinthians see themselves as being in the front of the parade, in the royal box, watching it, cheering on. Paul sees himself as amongst the vanquished, the, the scum at the end of the parade, just waiting for his death. Paul says we're fools for Christ, verse 10. We're the weak, we're the dishonoured. He picks up the strands of chapters 1 to 3. He preaches Christ crucified, the foolishness, the weakness, the ridiculed cross of Christ. And he's saying that that lifestyle, that normal Christian life for him, actually works out in everyday life in some fairly difficult ways. Verse 11 
To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. We're not like those university graduates who can work at a, a, an office on the top floor. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it, which sounds like a daily experience. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. It's pretty extreme, isn't it? The scum of the earth, uh, literally the off-scouring. The, the, the stuff that you... Well, you've got to get the oven clean, don't you? But all the rubbish that's in there, you just do... You, you scour it off and you throw it in the bin. Uh, that's what you do with it. And Paul says that that's what life is like for us. That's how we experience it day by day. So there's two versions of the normal Christian life. They couldn't be more different, could they? Which one is right? Well, you've got to ask, where do they come from? The Corinthian one, it's easy to see the logic, I think, because after all, they've been adopted into the family of the king of the universe. They're, they're royalty. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he loves us. Surely he wants to bless us and give us all the blessings that are available if we belong to him. And they want people to be attracted to Jesus, to Christianity, um, because if they become Christians, they'll feel like kings and queens. They'll feel like royalty. People will come if we offer them what they want, what they're really longing for, what they aspire to. Where does Paul get his idea from? Well, let me read to you verses 12 and 13 again. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, led out like someone condemned to die, a spectacle for everyone to gawk at, the butt of jokes and ridicule. Who does that remind you of? Just talk to the person next to you for a minute. Who does that remind you of? Anybody you've heard of? Yeah, the answer's, for most of us, the answer's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's that old one, Sunday school answer. <laughs> Jesus, absolutely right. That's Jesus, isn't it? He was slandered, and how did he respond? He blessed. He was led out to be crucified. The butt of jokes. Yeah, Jesus. He wasn't acclaimed and admired. He didn't become a fashion label. He was despised and rejected as the scum of the earth. And Paul says to the Corinthians, that's why the normal Christian life is like that. And so in verses 14 to 17, he sort of lands it for them. He says, I'm writing this to you not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if we have, you have 10,000 guardians, you only have one father in Christ. I was the one who brought the gospel to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So verse 16, I urge you to imitate me, to, to live the sort of life I live, to live the normal Christian life that is my life. Verse 17, I'm sending you Timothy, who's a faithful uh, in the Lord. He'll remind you of my way of life, my lifestyle, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. I teach Christ crucified. 
And there's a lifestyle that corresponds to that. And that's the lifestyle I've been living for the last 20 years. And that is the only normal Christian lifestyle. Now, admittedly, there's a degree of overstatement in how Paul makes, uh, describes his own life, to, to make the point. And also, he's an apostle. He probably gets more than his fair share of flack. But it's still perfectly clear, isn't it, which Paul thinks is the normal Christian life. It's not the Corinthians' version. It's his version, at least for the moment, till Christ returns. And when Jesus was around, he wasn't voted onto the town council. He didn't win citizen of the year. He wasn't invited to dancing with the stars. He was thrown on the rubbish tip. That's what happened to him. And the normal Christian life, well, Jesus shapes our expectations of what is normal. But it's worth stopping and just stepping back for a minute and asking the question, is this lifestyle chosen by Paul or imposed on Paul? If you read verses 11 to 13, it seems like it's imposed by others. Why is he hungry? Well, it's not because there was food there and he said, oh, no, I, I want to suffer. I'm not going to eat the food. It's because other people took the food away. Other people slandered him, ridiculed him. Other people said, Christians, we hate them and we're going to throw you in prison. It, it was imposed on him. In verse 9, he implies that God is behind that. It seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. So it's not something Paul goes out of his way to, to bring on himself. But there is still a matter of choice in it. It might be mainly about how others perceive you and treat you, not respected but reviled. But the Corinthians are choosing to avoid that. They're downplaying anything about Jesus and Christianity that's awkward or embarrassing, especially the message of the cross and projecting an image of success, of, of winners. That's who we are. And Paul warns them, stop, you're misrepresenting Jesus. And he urges them to imitate himself in that lifestyle. He wants us, as well as them, to accept that being cursed and slandered and persecuted is normal. And it's only when we do accept that and embrace that not welcome it as if I love it, but accept that that is normal. That when it does happen to me, I can respond rightly, not with anger and resentment, but with blessing and kindness. But let's step back again. Because in this church in Corinth, as Paul writes to them, they're connecting normal with the leaders that they follow. And, and all of us do that. He says to them in verse 6, I don't want you to be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. They're getting proud of the ones they follow as part of this winner's lifestyle, this normal Christian life of the victors. Last week we saw that, uh, if you were with us, from 1 Corinthians 3, that when they were saying, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Piper, I follow Keller, it's not about Piper and Keller. It's about them and their own ego and status. They're using those leaders to further their own agendas. And Paul's saying that their choice of leader is actually reflecting their own personal aspirations. See, if I aspire to live a rich, successful, honoured, respected life, 
Guess what sort of leader I will be attracted to? What sort of leader I'll follow? It happens in politics all the time. You know, do we vote for this person or that person in the elections? Of course, we're convinced they're competent managers or because they embody our aspirations. It could be both. I hope it's at least something of the first, but I suspect it's often more of the second. In Australian politics, for the first 60 years or so of Federation, most of our Prime Ministers were working class. They were train drivers. They were shopkeepers. That's different now, isn't it? If you're a shopkeeper, you wouldn't get a Guernsey. Our, our Prime Ministers now are lawyers and economists and merchant bankers. They're, they're people that we would aspire to be like in our culture. And it happens also often within Christianity as well. In Corinth, yes, they're Christians, but they're still imbibing that culture of the personality cults, the celebrity pastors. It's not just that they admire those pastors and join as a groupie. It's they follow the leader who embodies what they want to be like, who feeds their pride in themselves, who lets them puff themselves up. If you aspire to a life of excitement, on the edge, risky, guess what sort of person you'll want to follow? If you aspire to a life that's respected and popular and affirmed by all around you, what sort of leader will you follow? And so in Corinth, Paul, frankly, was an embarrassment. I'm not going to follow him, at least not most of them, but others, yes, they had other leaders that were much more attractive. And you had yours and I had mine and that's why we're at loggerheads, if I'm a Corinthian. Sociologists call it association status. Now the term makes sense, doesn't it? You get some status out of your association. And status was critical in Corinth. That was the currency of the whole city. It drove them and it drove the Christians as well, even though they'd become Christians. And it drives us too, doesn't it? It's alive and well in our culture. And so Paul's aim is not to wrestle their admiration away from other leaders so they'll admire him. No, he wants to wrestle their admiration away from every leader and instead follow Jesus into disgrace and dishonour. And in the first five verses, Paul points out some errors that are contributing to, to what's going wrong in Corinth. Uh, he talks about their inability to rightly assess leaders. So in verse 3, he, he says, I, I care little if I'm judged by you or any other court. I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. That doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time when Jesus returns. Wait until then. Because he'll bring to light what's hidden in darkness. Will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. See, he's saying, you think that those leaders are really terrific. You're very confident in your judgments about them, aren't you? Please don't be, because you don't really know. You don't know especially their motives. They might be doing a great job. They look really hardworking and things are growing, but maybe they're motivated purely by ego and self-promotion. Some leaders might look very ordinary and unimpressive, but maybe they're motivated by genuine, humble love. So hang off judging. Don't play one off against another. That's premature and arrogant. Don't do it till you see the true picture. But he also says they're judging by wrong criteria. Verse 1. 
This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. He deliberately uses words that deflate status. You you meet somebody new and they ask you, well, what do you do? You say, well, I'm a law student. That gives me some status. But imagine if you say, well, I'm a servant. Where does that land you? Absolutely nowhere. That's what Paul says about himself, though, and other leaders. They're just servants. But he also talks about them as stewards entrusted with the gospel of Jesus. Now, we don't use the word steward very much nowadays, so I'll, I'll try and illustrate it. Imagine you've just got a brand new phone, an iPhone. What are we up to? iPhone 12, something, all the bells and whistles. And you want to go for a surf, and you say, Tim, can you look after my iPhone while I go for a surf? Okay, you've entrusted your iPhone to me. Now, imagine when you come back, I say, ah, oh, great to see you back. I wanted to let the crowds know that I was looking after your iPhone. And I wanted to demonstrate just how rugged it was. And here's the pieces. How would you feel? What would you say to me? I presume you would not be happy, would you? Because what's required of a steward, somebody you entrust something precious to, simply faithfulness. Preserve it. Don't take risks with it. Don't throw it to each other on the concrete just to prove how rugged it is. No, look after it. You don't want to be flashy. You don't want to be clever. You just want to be faithful. Pass on the gospel message unchanged, not massaged to be more popular, not hidden parts of it to avoid rejection. So if you've got leaders like that in your church, your Bible study, your youth group, praise God for them. Who cares whether they're hip or hairy, whether they're clever or average, whether they're train drivers or lawyers? Paul says to the Corinthians, you've got to get it right when it comes to the normal Christian life and the leaders that you value. Don't be shaped by your own aspirations to be liked, by your need to be affirmed and respected by those who count. But look for faithful stewards of the gospel as your leaders who keep pointing you to Jesus and especially embrace the normal Christian life. And this really is the the take-home for this passage, I think, primarily. What is the normal Christian life? And will you embrace it? Paul warns them that the direction they're going, the sort of normal Christian life they envisage, they aspire to, they're trying to get and even see themselves as having, is totally wrong. It contradicts the very gospel they say that they believe. And friends, brothers and sisters, I want to urge us to take this to heart ourselves. The two big warning, the two big warnings are against a prosperity cult and a personality cult, especially the prosperity cult. It had gripped the Corinthian church. Their, their version of the normal Christian life was prosperity, health and wealth, success and influence, so that they were respected and honoured inside and outside the church. That's what they aspired to. That's what they expected. And they thought that if they had faith in God, God would give it to them. And unfortunately, and I say sadly, that is an increasingly popular teaching in Christian churches around the globe at the moment. It's called prosperity gospel. 
It was spawned in the West. It's been exported to Africa and Asia and South America and Australia. And it's decimating churches and spiritual health. It, it, it resonates with our desires and aspirations. That's part of the difficulty. That's why we want it so much. One Perth church website has as one of its basic tenets of faith, we believe in total prosperity, spiritual, mental, physical, financial and social. That's what they see as the normal Christian life. And you can find verses in the Bible to support such a belief. I know the plans I have for you, plans for your prosperity, to bless you. Yeah, God did say that. You'll be blessed in your barns and your stalls, in your businesses and in your families. Yes, God did say that to Israel. But here is a passage that directly asks the question, what is the normal Christian life when we're followers of Jesus? That's what the passage is actually about. And its answer is crystal clear, isn't it? There's no ifs or buts about it. There's no room to move and negotiate. Paul says the normal Christian life is a life of being disrespected, of not being liked, of being thrown on the rubbish heap of this world. Now, it's not wrong to desire those things, to desire health and wealth, to look for respect and long for it. I long for the days when it will come. But notice what Paul says. Already you have this. He says in verse 11, um, uh, to this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. Verse 13, right up to this moment. See, Paul knows that one day it'll change. Christ will return, and when he returns, all his people will be vindicated. All his people will be welcomed into his kingdom in resurrected glory. There is glory. There, there is wonder to come, but not now. The timing is critical. And Jesus is straight with us, just like Paul. He said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Deny your aspirations. Deny all your dreams of what you could become and want to become. Take up your cross, that is, be willing to suffer, even to the point of being thrown on the rubbish heap. Pick up your cross, not your crown. Unfortunately, heaps of churches all around the world their names reflect that that's actually what they believe, what they want to hold out to people, this triumphalist heresy. Victory, Victory Church International, Influencers Church, The Church of Champions, Dream Life Church, Prosperity Church. I think Paul would prefer St James's Church. James's, James was beheaded for his saviour. Or St Peter's Church. St Peter was crucified upside down in his loyalty to Jesus. Please take this warning to heart. It is a serious warning. And Paul implies that if the Corinthians continue down that track, they will lose Christ. The second warning is about personality cults, elevating and following Christian leaders, pastors, because they embody our aspirations. We want them to be impressive and clever and cool and funny and liked and popular because that's what I want to be like. We want them to deliver and we want them to deliver for us when we associate with them. We don't like them if they're unpopular. We won't follow them. 
And that inevitably leads to playing one off against another. I, I go to so-and-so's church. I, I listen to this podcast. I follow this person. You see, if you're doing that, you haven't understood what the normal Christian life is like. We follow a crucified Messiah. We boast in a disgusting crucifixion. What sort of life do you think is normal? I remember going to a 21st birthday party, which I love going to. And uh, I was just chatting to uh, a girl there. Uh, she was second year uni. Um, she found out I was a Christian and she said, oh, I used to be a Christian. I said, oh, please tell me something of your story. She said, oh, when she was 16, she got invited along to a, a church youth group. And she was told that God loved her and had a wonderful plan for her life. And she said that really resonated with her because she had a wonderful plan for her life too. And she assumed that, they, that those just lined up. But at 19, it sort of hadn't worked out as well as she hoped. She didn't have a boyfriend. She was still alone. Her parents had got divorced in the meantime. She'd failed a couple of exams. So she gave up on Jesus. She said, I'm trying yoga now. And I said, well, can you just explain that to me? Well, she said, I had these expectations and they all got trashed. They, they weren't met. Now, I'm not quite sure where she got the expectations from. But that's the difficulty, isn't it? If our expectations are that in being a Christian, my life will be the life of a winner, a victor, respected, liked by everybody, and it doesn't work out that way, it will be devastating. And the choices I make reflect my expectations. They're shaped by our situation, aren't they? They're shaped by my own self-centred aspirations for the sort of life I dream about, they're shaped by the situation I find myself in, the culture of Perth, much more than Jesus. And they're shaped by the normal life of those who don't follow Jesus. I assume that my life will probably be just like theirs. But if you're a Christian, Paul gives us a very different expectation of the normal Christian life. If my expectation is I get my degree, put it on the wall, that's the ticket to success, I'll just follow everybody else. Well, probably I'll just keep making choices down that line. I can live in a nice home in the western suburbs or on the beachfront at, at Rockingham, respected by neighbours, loved by friends. But if that's my expectation, it's almost impossible to consider making choices, making decisions that will threaten that expectation. Now, I suspect that one of the reasons so few of us seriously contemplate mission work is because it just doesn't fit our expectations of what my life is going to turn out like. To be a missionary in Jordan or Turkey or the Congo or Vanuatu or even in Midland or Armadale, that's not the life I, I, I imagine for myself and so I don't even think about it. But what if my expectation of the normal Christian life was more like Paul's? than my friends from school. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, we're in rags, we're brutally treated, we're homeless, we work hard with our hands, we're cursed, we're persecuted, we're slandered, we're the scum of the earth. What decisions would you make if that was your expectation? How would you live life? Well, I guess firstly, you'd be incredibly thankful that it's not always like that. In fact, I'd be surprised joyfully surprised that that's not how I'm going to experience life this afternoon, probably. 
And that's right. It is a wonderful blessing of God that our lives are often so much better than the normal Christian life. But I presume as well, I'd actually be willing to live that normal Christian life, to make some decisions that might result in living that sort of normal Christian life, to go and live places where, which are much more difficult, to open my mouth and say things in ways that will make my life more difficult. I'll be much more ready to speak up about Jesus to my friends, even in conversations about awkward subjects like LGBTQI, uh, 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 even if it might mean that people curse me and slander me. See, what I expect to be the normal Christian life will shape you enormously. Recognise that. And I need to say to myself as well as to you, embrace the true normal Christian life. Set that as your expectations. And probably life won't be as bad as that, and that'll be nice, but it might be as bad as that. And you'll be able to choose to enter that, to embrace it and to live it, trusting in your Saviour who went to the cross for you and for me.